It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Monday, August 10, 2020. I'm Aaron Fulton with Raven News. It's shaping up to be a competitive year for candidates running for local public office. The filing period to run for seats on the Sitka Assembly and the Sitka School Board closed on Friday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eight people are running for the two assembly seats being vacated by members Stephen Eisenbeis and Richard Wien, whose three-year terms end this fall. Steve Lee and Leo Jimmy threw their hats in the ring shortly after the candidate filing period opened in July. Then on Friday, Frederick Olson Jr., Crystal Duncan, Rebecca Hemshute, Marshall Albertson, Amy Bethune, and Diana Dapsovich all filed to run. There's a two-way race for the mayor's chair between incumbent Gary Paxton and Deputy Mayor Stephen Eisenweiss. Three people are running for two open seats on the Sitka School Board. Blossom Twitchell and Andrew Hames were recently appointed to temporary school board terms after Dion Brady-Howard and Elias Erickson stepped down this summer. Hames and Twitchell have both filed to run for full terms, as has Cass Pook, who has 18 years of Sitka School Board experience but lost her seat in a close three-way race two years ago. Raven News has offered interviews to all candidates and will publish those interviews along with candidate statements and questionnaires in the coming weeks. The municipal election is Tuesday, October 6th. Another person in Sitka has tested positive for the coronavirus. Local health officials announced the new case Friday. The non-resident is in his 40s. He did not have symptoms when he was tested for the virus on August 3rd. He is now isolating and state health officials have begun the contact tracing process according to a city press release. Since April, 27 Sitkins have tested positive for the coronavirus. 13 non-residents have tested positive, making 40 cases total. One patient who was hospitalized has since recovered. In an email to KCAW, public health nurse Denise Ewing wrote that the patient, quote, has been improving at home. Only three of Sitka's cases remain active, according to city data. The Alaska Department of Health and Social Services, however, is reporting more active cases. KCAW asked Ewing about data discrepancies between states' data and the cities. Ewing said that local numbers are the most timely and accurate and, quote, we do not want to hold back information allowing the state to catch up. Ewing also said that the state is now prioritizing all high-risk positive cases in the contact tracing process. She said they're still doing full contact tracing for low-risk cases, but are asking the patients to reach out to their contacts themselves and provide them with necessary quarantine information. The contacts of low-risk cases will not receive check-ins directly from the state, but Ewing said they should still take the mandatory 14-day quarantine seriously. You can read our full Q&A with Sitka's public health nurse on our website, kcaw.org. Alaska has upped the ante for travelers arriving from out of state. Literally, beginning on Tuesday, August 11th, non-resident arrivals would need proof of a negative COVID test three days prior to entering the state or pay $250 for a test when they step off the plane. KCAW's Robert Woolsey reports. The new mandate spells the end of free testing at Alaskan airports for visitors to the state. Also gone are the option to test five days before arrival or to skip testing altogether and self-quarantine for 14 days. The mandate applies to all non-residents no matter how they enter the state. Residents, however, can still get the free airport test or opt for the two-week quarantine. The idea behind the mandate is to conserve testing resources for residents and to reverse the steady increase in community spread seen throughout the state this summer. State epidemiologist Dr. Joe McLaughlin says Alaska's infection and death rates remain low compared to other states. However, as everybody knows, we went through a pretty uh, pretty big surge of cases over the last six weeks or so. 
uh, certainly the last month. And that was very, very difficult for us to manage. McLaughlin says that contact tracing in particular was challenging during the summer surge. He spoke during a weekly video conference for the media with top medical experts in the state. The new travel mandate was released during the session, along with other details about the state's response to the pandemic. McLaughlin said the demographics of the illness had changed since the spring. The main drivers that we're seeing right now of the of the case count is uh, young adults, people in their 20s and their 30s and even their 40s. They're really driving the epidemic right now. In Sitka, the most recent cluster of four cases involved a man in his 40s, a woman in her 20s, and two teenage girls. McLaughlin said there wasn't any remaining doubt about the efficacy of masks in helping prevent the spread of the disease and that the scientific literature was conclusive. Dr. Ann Zink, Alaska's chief medical officer, added that everything we've been doing with hygiene, hand washing, social distancing, and masks remains critical to controlling the virus. I keep saying this virus is a tiny little set of RNA molecules surrounded by a little fat structure that only lives if we let it by going from person to person. And so if we can just stay away from each other and do those things, we're really in control of that. Zink said it was the job of the Department of Health and Social Services to follow the data, the science, and the available information and present it in the most transparent way that we can. She suggested that mandates alone would not stop COVID-19. Travel restrictions, mandates, requests, requirements, all those things. At the bottom line, the virus does not care if it was mandated you wore the mask or not. It cares that it can't get to the next person. She added that the more we can do as individual Alaskans to stand up and minimize the spread from one person to another, we are in control of this virus and it's not in control of us. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. In addition to the stricter testing requirements for non-resident travelers to Alaska, the new mandate requires all people who travel to fill out a declaration on arrival. You can find a link on our website, kcaw.org. An effort to create global industry standards for mine waste has emerged almost six years to the day after a massive tailings dam at Mount Polly failed in British Columbia. As Coast Alaska's Jacob Resnick reports, there are concerns that the new standards don't go far enough to protect communities downstream. The Global Tailings Review effort launched more than a year ago. Its catalyst was the deadly dam collapse last year at the Brazilian mine near Brumadinho that killed hundreds of people. Closer to home, British Columbia's Mount Pauly mine disaster in 2014 wasn't deadly, but its aftermath revealed what critics saw as weaknesses in Canada's regulations that allowed a mine company to pollute a river and escape fines or prosecution. A broad panel of industry, international civic organizations, and United Nations experts studied both disasters. Speaking a year ago, Elisa Tonda of the UN's Environment Program said expectations for the new standards would be high. The review will have to create a very strong and powerful industry standard that will raise the bar from current practices and current approaches. And on August 5th, the standards were released. The 21-page document says its goal is zero harm to people and the environment with zero tolerance for fatalities. The UN says it will work with translating these ideals into national standards. But in the meantime, Charlie Cobb, Alaska's dam safety engineer, says he doesn't see many practical takeaways. I don't mind referencing federal documents as a state regulator, but I have a hard time with referencing international guidance. Not that he doesn't see a need. He serves as the chairman of a committee developing uniform guidelines for tailing dams in the U.S. to supplement existing standards in the National Dam Safety Program. And after Mount Polly failed, 
you know, I raised my hand in the board meeting and says, you know, we probably ought to, you know, step up to the plate and start, you know, looking at tailing stamps a little more closely. But the just-released global standards include a number of lofty principles, like the respect for human rights downstream. But none of this high-sounding language is binding by any court of law or government regulator. And that's a problem, says David Chambers, a mining consultant with a Center for Science in Public Participation in Bozeman, Montana. There isn't any teeth in this. It's all voluntary compliance. And uh, I think more importantly, there's sort of a lack of performance standards. We'd hope that there would be things like recommended factors of safety, which aren't in there. So how are these global standards supposed to work? An industry group called the International Council on Mining and Metals was one of the key players in crafting the language. It represents about a third of the world's mining industry. Asked how ICMM would police its membership, the trade group's CEO, Tom Butler, conceded that they're a voluntary organization, not a regulator. But ultimately, if a member is consistently not complying or bringing um, ICMM into disrepute, there are mechanisms that exist within the ICMM Articles of Association for expulsion. The catalyst for raising the standards for mine tailing storage comes from investors as well as tribes and green groups. Part of the global effort was coordinated with managers of pension funds that have invested heavily in global mining operations. Catastrophic dam failures like Brazil's are a financial liability. Because when these tailing stands fail, these guys' stock value goes through the floor, you know, it gets hammered. And the investors are the ones losing that money. That's Charlie Cobb again, Alaska's dam safety engineer. And so the investors finally said, well, what, what are we investing in here that there's all this risk that we don't know about? And so they forced, they forced the, their member organizations to disclose their tailings dam inventories. That's created a searchable online database. It includes entries like the Red Chris Mine, an open-pit gold and copper mine in British Columbia that's upstream from the Stikine River watershed. The mine was developed by Imperial Metals, the same firm responsible for Mount Polly. You know, we're going to have to be watching the Red Chris Lake of Poison. You know, they call it a tailings storage facility. But that's going to be there forever. Frederick Olson Jr. heads the Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission from Sitka. It's a regional effort by tribes to watchdog mining on both sides of the border. You know, our people have been here for thousands of years, and we want to be here for thousands of years into the future. And so we need to look out for this stuff. Olson and other Alaskans who are looking out across the border are encouraged by the standards set in the Global Tailings Review, but plan to remain vigilant. The best way to deal with tailings dams failures, most agree, is to prevent them. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Jacob Resnick. I'm Erin Fulton, and this has been Raven News. This 